Hello, and welcome to The Odd Web. Our guest today is Professor Elizabeth Keating, a professor of anthropology at UT Austin and the author of The Essential Questions, Interview Your Family to Uncover Stories and Bridge Generations. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. So you wrote the book about interviewing your family. I don't think most people do that. So uh, my first question is, why would somebody want to interview their family? Well, that's an excellent question, isn't it? Because we usually think that we know our family very well, and they might be the last person that we would want to interview. But my project was to understand how it was that I got into the situation that I got into, which was after my mother died, I felt this tremendous loss. And I realized that I'd never asked her the things that I wish after she had passed away that I knew about her. And I know that a lot of people are probably in the same position. And I've talked to a few people who have regretted that they didn't have a chance to really sit down with their parents or grandparents and ask them some questions they were curious about. And I, uh, I, the funny thing was that I had interviewed my mother, you know, being a researcher before she died, but I asked her about things about the family tree. And I realized after she was gone, I really wanted to know about her, what it was like when she grew up, what the different challenges she had as a young person, and how life looked back then, because culture has changed so dramatically in recent years. And I thought about my own profession, which is anthropology, and I thought it would be useful to approach the idea of finding out about your parents and grandparents by taking an anthropological point of view and taking an approach an anthropologist would take. So I started interviewing people to try out some questions. And I interviewed people from many different countries. And I found the process of interviewing so fascinating that I had my students at the University of Texas, Austin, as one of their class projects, interview one of their grandparents. And they loved the project and they found out so much that they had no idea about. And that's the point with an anthropological approach is that you get to find out things that you would never have thought to ask about because they were things that you didn't know. And so I think you mentioned the family tree side, and I grew up in Israel where all kids, at least in most schools, are required to interview all their living relatives and try to rebuild the family tree as much as they can. Right? That's called the Roots Project, and I think in most schools that happens around the seventh grade. But you're talking about a different kind of interview here, where I assume you're asking more personal, experiential questions. So can you give us some examples of the kind of questions that you would ask? Yes, certainly. The kinds of questions that an anthropologist asks, if you can imagine, one of the earliest anthropologists who really pioneered the research method that we use now in anthropology around the world, he went to live among a group of people and tried to understand what their ordinary life was like. And so an anthropologist wants to know what someone's ordinary life is like. And very often when you sit down to interview people about their family history, you get the big events, the weddings, the funerals, the 
the different events that were either worthy of celebration or worthy of a, a big uh, production made out of them. But what anthropologists are interested in is everyday ordinary life. And this is the sort of thing people think isn't worth talking about usually. What, what could be interesting about ordinary life? But if you think about it, ordinary life is what we spend 90% of our time engaged in. And it's also what we miss when it's gone. And it gives us a clue about what a person's way of life is. And that's why anthropologists are interested in ordinary life. And I was very interested in what my mother's everyday life would have been like. And so I started asking people questions about everyday life. The first question that I start out with after a few introductory questions to get them warmed up is to describe the home they grew up in. And that's a fascinating question because what I'm looking for and what people are looking for in using this question is a description of the house. Now, that sounds pretty boring, but it's actually fascinating because as people start describing the house, of course, they start describing what went on there and who was spending time with whom and lots of uh, aspects of the way life was lived back then. There were probably different kinds of heating and different kinds of ways of getting to school and different uh, kinds of activities that you did after school. And all of that gets filled in when you ask about the home and the neighborhood. And there are other questions too that I can talk about that are similar to that. There are questions that an anthropologist, if you think of yourself as an anthropologist, what would you want to know when you are trying to describe a set of uh, a, a community and people in it and what they what they found fascinating or what they found fearful or what they found uh, remarkable? Interesting. So I'm curious to what degree the U.S. is kind of unique or the Western world is unique in how disconnected the generations are because I grew up in a Jewish family from Eastern Europe. And so everyone I know told me everything they could tell me about <laughs> their childhood and their life and what their house was like and who their friends were and who their neighbors were. So I don't know whether I would get as much new information if I asked those questions as the average American would. Is that your impression or am I unique and that everybody in my family is really talkative? I think that your situation is somewhat unique, uh, even though you're making a contrast between the U.S. and other places. But I have, I'm very fortunate at the University of Texas now to have students that come from all over the world. They're first generation students, so their parents moved and they became the first generation Americans. And so they've interviewed their grandparents who live back in China or live in Africa or live in uh, Latin America. And it's really surprising how little they know about that way of life. Now, you're right. They have become very disconnected. But uh, I think that disconnection is probably pretty common nowadays in, in, uh, for many reasons, for many reasons. But I think you are very, very lucky that even though it might have seemed tiresome to you as a kid, um, 
I think you have a sense of your own identity and a sense of the people who contributed to your family in a way that many Americans don't. Even Americans that are, let's say, ninth generation or something like that, they they really have a tendency when they're with their grandparents that the grandparents just focus on them and they don't ever really find out about them or people move away. Of course, in the U.S., people are very mobile and don't live near their families. Um, but did in the conversations you had with people, did they talk about the sort of ordinary stuff of life and what they did in an ordinary day? Quite a bit. And again, it's more common on my mom's side of the family, my father's side of the family. Um, in fact, my grandfather on the paternal side, he never talked about childhood or family or any of that stuff. And our suspicion was that that's because he was a devout communist and everybody in his family being Jewish were probably merchants of some kind. So he was yeah. probably very ashamed of his background because it didn't match his ideology. But on my mom's side, I know the history of the house she grew up in and how it came to be that they only occupied the particular part of the house, but not the other part and who their neighbors were and how one neighbor got really surprised when they found out something about another neighbor, all of that local gossip. Um, so yeah, they did talk about it. Let me try to ask you this as an engineer, I'm trying to figure out what is the goal of every exercise or of every project. So what would people try to pursue with these questions if they ask their family members this? Uh, is the goal to try to find contrasts, to try to question things that we take for granted, but that really could be done differently? In some ways, yes, it's all of those things. It's also a way to be able to learn to put yourself in the perspective of another person. Another aspect of anthropology is that we try to take the perspective of the other person. Of course, that's a huge challenge and we don't achieve it. But the idea is to try to imagine what it was, what it's like to be in that person's shoes living that life. And that's a very useful exercise for people to engage in. It's a thrilling exercise because it really can use a lot of our imagination. And also it requires us to know something of the details of what it what that life might be like to live. And in terms of one's own ancestors, putting oneself in their position is a way also to better grasp some of the, as you say, some of the changes that have taken place, but also some of the ways that people have had to change through their lifetime in order to adapt to the various innovations that are constantly uh, in people's pathway to be mastered before the next uh, the next phase can can take place, and I think for younger people in a family to have a, an idea of the challenges that people have experienced, it is it's hard for them to get that that uh, knowledge. Otherwise, they tend to see their grandparent as this older person who's frail or doesn't understand computers or doesn't get uh, the same music 
and so forth. So it's it's very easy for them to find things that are different. But in doing the interview, then they can find things that are similar between themselves and their grandparents, even though there's going to be a lot that's different, of course. So you mentioned the contrast between people's daily lives and big momentous events that people tend to talk about. The interesting thing, at least for me personally, is that I've always been inspired by hearing how my grandparents dealt with serious hardship that I've never experienced. Um, Their daily lives, yeah, it was fun to listen to how my grandfather used to try to run over pigs on his bicycle. Sorry for the detail. (laughs) (laughs) But that was not inspiring. But how he handled June 22nd, 1941, when the Germans invaded, the town got evacuated and he got left alone in the middle of two advancing armies, Germans on one side, Soviets on the other side, and he doesn't speak either of those two languages. That was a much more inspiring story for me personally. So I'm curious why focus on daily life as opposed to these kind of amazing events that happened in the past, but that we haven't experienced with our comfortable life. And so maybe we can gain some perspective by considering what our grandparents managed to cope with. Yes, exactly. I'm not excluding the momentous events of the type that you're talking about, but rather the stress on marriages and confirmations and the kinds of formal processes that societies recognize. So it's often easy to ignore the everyday life. Now, what you're talking about is a time when, yes, people were really tested to the limits and great tragedies took place. And I have heard some of those stories from people uh, that I've interviewed, and they have been extremely moving. I remember one story of a uh, a woman who grew up in, the, in near the Southampton area in the UK where there was a big naval base. And one night during World War II, at the beginning of World War II, her parents put the kids, her and her brother, in the car. No clothes, no books, no toys, no nothing, and took off in the middle of the night so they could get to a safer place. And she says that she remembers clearly sitting in the back of the car and it was a moonlit night and she was six years old and she looked out at that moonlit night and thought life can change in a matter of minutes. So I have heard some very, very moving stories like that from a kid's perspective. And I think hearing it from a child's perspective is very, very interesting and unusual. And that's what the interview is aiming for is to understand some of those episodes from a child's perspective or a young person's perspective. In in the case of your family, I think those are very, very important stories to tell and, and they should be told. And otherwise people lose connection with those, uh, the possibilities for those kinds of tragedies to happen. And that's one other thing where I've noticed in some cases I am spending, let's say, more resources than the average person preparing for these kind of cataclysmic disasters, just because I know my family's history. I know that in almost every generation, one of these happened. 
and they had more effect than probably all all the bouts of ordinary life in between. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, okay, if I spend just a little bit more resources to be slightly more prepared than others, it's probably worth it because one of those will happen one day, right? Yes. It seems like that's a rule of history. Um, most people look at me like I'm weird. Like, why are you preparing for war? We've never seen one. Yeah, well, I'm, I think it's, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's unfortunate that there are still a lot of a lot of conflicts that uh, seem to move in that direction without any other means of of um, reconciliation. It's, it is tragic for sure, and I think those telling those stories and thinking about those topics. You may think you're over prepared. I don't know if there's any such thing as being over prepared. I think most of the successful people's biographies you read, they uh, turn out to have been pretty over prepared in one way or another. Maybe in talent, they were over prepared, or maybe in their hard work, they were over prepared. But I don't think that's uh, such a, a, a failing after all. Yeah. Well, and, and I certainly don't try to be overprepared, right? Um, there's an old mi- Middle Eastern, uh, I don't know how to say this, let's call it wisdom, that if a tiger is chasing you and, and your neighbor, you don't need to outrun the tiger. You need to outrun your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a, a very... Uh, a very last minute sort of decision, isn't it? <laughs> right. Um, all right. I, I want to get back to mundane life. What kind of details should people focus on when they try to not just interview, but to really understand what it was like? What do you need to ask to be able to really reconstruct it in your mind, what it was like to be in that situation at the time? I've used a model from anthropology looking at space, time, interactions, kinship, belief system, fears, uh, the way people dress, the way they think of a beautiful body, and ideas like that that get at the cultural material of those times. I think most people haven't realized how radically culture is changing. It always changes, of course, but it's changing at a very rapid rate these days because of the um, different technologies people are adapting to. And one of the things that I've noticed is that it's not just changing, but the younger generation seems to hold quite a bit of disdain towards everything that came before them. I don't know if that has always been the case or it is unique to our times. But it seems like we're almost trying to start from a blank slate and to erase everything that came before because everyone before us was racist, sexist, misogynist, every other ist we can think of. How do people get over that obstacle and really try to identify themselves with that situation in the past without looking at it as something that is beneath them? Yes, it's a very interesting situation, isn't it? A very interesting time because people who have been in privileged positions aren't always so reflexive about the behavior of their uh, of their group. And it's I think also very easy for young people 
to think in black and white terms. I I was great at that. <laughs> uh, I think I even uh, have a quote in my book from Aristotle who said that the young people are annoyingly sure that they're right about everything. And so I think it probably is something that's been with the human society for a long time. And I think it's there's an energy to it and a I, and an idealism and I, that I think we value. At the same time, yes, it is very difficult as a young person to to see in terms of compromises and this very slow progress towards real real change in terms of people's attitudes. And I, I talked to some of my colleagues at the uh, School of Public Policy at the university, and they told me that one of the most difficult things for young people coming in that want to be committed to public policy is the long time it takes to make any progress. And I think that's difficult for people who are young to imagine time in in those kinds of terms. And uh, so all of that conspires together, I think, to make it seem as if uh, the older generation is, uh, is really uh, being barely tolerated for, for their... Uh, uh, for what they've, what the younger people have inherited, and at the same time, I think they do forget a lot of the progress that's been made. Of course, you know, I mean, it's it's so much easier to to move for change if you have a strong idea of of what needs to be changed. But there, ha- there is a, I think, uh, uh, in my view, a very strong record of progress even though it sometimes seems as if they're, we're starting again at the beginning. It's, uh, it's just a very challenging topic. People living together harmoniously is, uh, everyone thinks it's a default for human beings. If we can just get rid of the troublemakers, we'll all be fine. But I, I think there's a lot uh, more complexity to the human society than, than we really are willing to recognize a lot of the time. Well, a, a lot of that is just taking things for granted, like you say, because if you were to actually look at human society, it seems like we tend to complain about the elections that went badly, right? But every time we hold an election and we don't have a war afterwards, that's a miracle. That's unusual <laughs> in history. <laughs> yes, that's a very good point. That The, the, uh, the um, transfer of power is a very, very delicate time. And you're right, that, that has been in the past a terrible, terribly fraught with conflict. So I want to focus on something that you said that seems really interesting, that young people are upset that progress is taking longer than they wanted. Well, speed is one parameter. But another parameter that I've noticed quite a bit is that people's idea of progress is often some untested hypothesis that has never been tried before, right? And so wouldn't exploring history give people perspective about what we know kind of sort of worked, whereas the idea of this utopia that people have in their minds, it might be great, might be bad. We might want to test it on a small group before we test it on everybody. Or is that the sort of perspective people should be looking for? Yes, I do agree with you that 
I think that um, the the way that that we evaluate uh, ourselves is very harsh, and I think that there are so many really interesting arguments in philosophy about the the moral dilemmas. I mean, the tiger chasing you is one example, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, and those moral dilemmas are part of everyone's track in in trying to lead a good life, and it's very very difficult to rationalize them, especially cross culturally. So you have the cross cultural situation where one person does one thing to show respect, and the other person does the opposite to show respect. So I can give you an example. I did some research with engineers in four different countries, and they were collaborating with, uh, with uh, technologies. And there were a lot of cross-cultural miscommunications. And one example was one group was offended, so offended they almost quit the project, that they weren't addressed by their first name in emails. They thought, felt they were treated like animals. But the other side, the Amer- it turned out it was the Americans in this case, they thought that they were saving time, which was respectful of the other, and also being informal by not using a salutation. And informality was building trust for them. And so you, they, you had these two sides. So this makes the moral conundrums even more complicated when you've got different groups with different ideas about what moral rightness is. And this has been a huge discussion in anthropology about global human rights. How do you really decide what those rights are going to be? That's a difficult question to be respectful to all different cultures. Okay. I know that's Veering off our original topic, but I'm really curious about this. As you can tell by the shelf behind me, I'm pretty interested <laughs> in philosophy as well. But I don't know the anthropological angle to this, right? So how do you view as an anthropology sort of the variations between the sort of ethics that people in different cultures follow? We have followed different ways over different periods of the study of anthropology. And more recently, people have tried to take the perspective of the person that we're researching so that we try to understand the world from their perspective. And that means a a kind of uh, understanding, even if the moral system is different. And this happened to me when I was doing fieldwork. I did my first anthropology fieldwork on a small island in the Pacific, north of New Guinea and east of the Philippines. And that was a very hierarchical society. And even at mealtime, the family would eat in hierarchical order. It was a big extended family. So there was the secondary chief there and the secondary chief's wife. And then there was me, the foreigner. And then there were other people that would get served in a particular order. So no one broke bread together, as we might know it in the West, but they ate singly one at a time. And so the, all the food was, was actually put in front of the, the highest status person, and then all the food would move down the line. And they were a, a very, very generous people, very peaceful, very uh, 
warm and um, supportive, but this was their system. And it was really, really important to, to follow this pattern. But for me, because the kids were down at the end of the line, I was always counting how many people there were. When it was my turn to eat, I was counting how many people there were so I wouldn't eat too much because I had a different system in my head, which was equality, you know, share out whatever you have equally. So that's an example of systems that are very, very different, but they are part of a larger system that works very well. So the hierarchy, the chief, by the way, was more like the grandpa. He was the um, the real benefactor of everybody. He didn't have a nicer house by by very much at all than anyone else. And people would come day and night to. I I lived with that family. They would come day and night asking for things, and he would just keep giving things out. So. Uh, it was not really, in a way, an enviable position to be the chief there because you had to keep, just keep on giving everything you had. But still, this is from the outside, the system might look unequal. And in fact, it was unequal, but it was part of a larger system. So it's very difficult to disentangle some of these, these cultural systems and to make some decision about whether about equal rights or, uh, although I think in, in truth that there are, there are more and more people involved in the discussion about global, about global rights. And the more people that are in the discussion, the better it will be because then people can, can advocate for their systems or understand ways that they can manage that will be uh, acceptable to everybody, but it's very, very difficult because we've been raised with these systems from the time we're small, and we don't really see the world in another way. Right. So, as an engineer, I'm immediately seeing several dimensions here. One is that clearly you're outlining the fact that different cultures optimize for different things and view different things as positive values versus negative values. So equality is a positive for us in the West, or at least in most parts of the West, but hierarchy is more important in some parts than equality. But what I'm curious about is that even within those societies, typically, even though we all pay lip service to equality, there are some people that we view as more virtuous than others. And those people aren't always actually following exactly what we view as the normal common way, right? Maybe they are even more altruistic or maybe something else, right? Like all the ancient Greeks and Romans looked up to Socrates, not because he was just like all the other Greeks and Romans, but because he was different. And so I'm curious when you're looking at a society like this in New Guinea, if you ask people who is the most virtuous person in the village, do they all agree? Do they all have the idea of the uncommonly virtuous person? Well, in fact, uh in the, on this small island in the Pacific, I don't think you're going to like this answer because for them, virtue was tied to partly to birthright and partly to uh, the sacred realm. And they also didn't really have the same type of pattern of, say, a supreme being. They had the supreme being, but it was very differently organized so that it 
the idea wasn't really that this being would be guarding over, looking over us in the paternalistic fashion of the chief that I described earlier, but but actually that it was part of the chief. So it's very, very, it becomes difficult to compare because the systems are just so radically different in terms of of how they're organized. Now, this whole island is Christian as well. So they were missionized um, oh, beginning in, uh, beginning early on, 1800s especially. And so they have a lot of knowledge about Christianity and they have very philosophical discussions about it. So I, I had a conversation once with one of the Catholic nuns there and she told me then that people were always asking her about the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. And they were very, very interested in the, uh, in the different belief systems. And so they, uh, they're capable, certainly, of facing outward to the world, and they, and they do quite capably. But at the same time, there are certain uh, ways they have of organizing their society that they value very highly. and. That they ha- and of course they have a lot of criticisms of outsiders. Americans, particularly, are considered to be ungenerous, even though Americans give a tremendous amount of foreign aid. So it's very difficult to organize people's perceptions versus their, you know, from the engineer's standpoint. I think people are just. Um, fountains of symbolic behavior they they really thrive on on complexity and symbolic behavior and uh, margaret mead has some very interesting comments about how people are so much more invested in status and in in the kinds of uh, symbolic achievements in society that they will even go hungry to achieve that and so that we have this very importance played on symbolic behavior and symbolic achievement. And it, that makes our lives both fascinating and complicated. So that when you were talking before about whether a person is virtuous or not, that's probably there, there's a very complex working of different symbol systems there. Maybe they're wealthy, but they didn't get their wealth in a very admirable way. But but that is exactly what I'm going for. If we look at people in the West who are the most X, right? X can be multiple different things. You could have the most powerful person. That's probably the president of the United States. You could have the richest person. That's either Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos right now. I'm not sure which one, right? Or you can have the most generous, self-sacrificing person. Maybe that's Mother Teresa, right? You have multiple dimensions. Um, and so when you say that the person's virtue for these islanders is often tied to birthright, that means that behavior is decoupled from essentially ethical capital or moral capital? Um, or am I understanding it wrong? <laughs> no, no it, it, no, it doesn't mean that. It just means that, that people are guided into virtue or not by external forces and not 
their own agency. So in there are certain cultures in the world that anthropologists have described as being individual instead of individual, so that one sees oneself as a member uh, of a of a larger group, certainly not a not just one, but uh, like we do in the West, we see ourselves as independent agents and we're responsible independently. But in other places, that's not the case. It's very difficult to think of yourself as separate from your family, your parents, and um, they, and even their experiences, which I think you, you were alluding to earlier that you don't feel separate from their experiences. So there's a sense of that same idea where you're not separate from, from ancestors' experiences. And for these islanders, the ancestors are still very present in the environment for some of them. I mean, of course, they have a varied uh, set of beliefs as well. I'm talking more about the, the traditional beliefs that um, I was there over 25 years ago, so I can't really speak about it um, too accurately now. But the idea being that that um, that one's responsibility for one's own virtue can can even be an assumption. Uh, maybe the the group is responsible for people's virtue, and and that makes it a different kind of calculation. Interesting. All right. So I want to now go towards the most hopeful scenario of what we can get out of this, so to speak. Let's say we got everybody to interview their family members and really understand their perspective. Let's say we, we even got people to go broader and maybe read some books about other cultures. I don't know. I, I really liked The World Until Yesterday, which was about Papua New Guinea, right? For the most part. Um, but I'm sure there are other books that you can recommend for people to really understand how people view certain things that we take for granted differently. If we got people to do all of that, how would their behavior be better in the world? What can we get people to improve relative to the way things are now? I hope we would get people talking with each other more and discussing things because that's really the only way that we know what we think is when we talk with other people about it or write it down. The language is an amazing faculty for organizing ideas and organizing even actions. And so talking about it, reading is a very solitary kind of exercise. And I think that reading is great. Reading is necessary. Uh, and there are so many good books to read. I don't have time to read them all. But I think talking about the books is really important, too, and being fearless about talking about it. Unfortunately, today, many people are talking about how fearful people are of, about raising certain topics with certain people or talking about certain topics. I think that's really unfortunate. I think that, that people are afraid of being labeled unfairly when they're just really trying out ideas or they just don't know yet. Uh, what a what a broader scope idea might be or a different one. So I think that talking would be a good a, a, a good idea 
and talking about ideas, talking about everyone's ideas, not, not just the ones in books, but lots of people's ideas. And I think it's very much harder to disagree with someone face to face without giving them a chance to talk about their own ideas. And that's, that's really important, very important to me. And I am sad to see people shutting themselves down and self-censoring. Although I do understand that that in the West, we have always thought that intentionality resides with the person. And so we even punish people differently based on whether they intended something or not. However, in a lot of places, intention doesn't matter. It's what the action caused of someone else. And that's a very real and important distinction so that it's important not to say things that will be uh, offensive and uh, and hurtful to people. So, of course, you can't say anything. Uh, we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think in many cases in the West right now, intention is sort of implied through mind reading, and people always mind read the worst possible way in which you could have intended. It, yes, right? there, there just seems to be a, a, a crisis in ex- in really being able to handle the um, the diverse ideas that that people have, and I think it, it is more difficult to handle diversity. I think everyone knows that, but it's worth it, and it's, it's worth trying, even though uh, we're all we're all making mistakes. Uh, I can. Add another pet peeve of mine. I know that you know, we were supposed to end on the hopeful on the hopeful note, but I can't not say this. Um, besides just trying out ideas, which I wish people were freer to do, one of the things that really bugs me, again, as an engineer, I look at the world, and typically the way in engineering we try to figure things out is first we figure out the root cause if something is wrong, and then we try various solutions and see which ones work, right? But this separation into finding the cause and discussing the solution seems to be missing from the discussion, and at least in the public realm. A lot of the time, you try to just figure out what the facts are, and you're immediately crucified because if your facts happen to be right, then maybe it would lead to solutions that somebody won't like, right? And so they are attacking you for the solutions that might come out of what you're actually exploring as just trying to state things as they are. Um, that's my personal pet peeve because this way we'll never get to the truth of anything. If every fact that you're trying to figure out about the world might lead to some solution that somebody doesn't like. It's true that in engineering and in science there in the lab, you can do so many things without any, um, you know, without any emotion, uh, at least that we know of, uh, in terms of the the operations between the different parts. But I think with people, it's much, much more difficult to, to persuade people, especially if they have certain, uh, certain affiliations. So their loyalties are connected with their ideas, and it can become a bit unsettling to to be separated from that, those ideas but i think that 
that some understanding of how difficult it can be for people and to to take the anthropologist's path of trying to understand the world from the other person's perspective. So I think that in engineering, what you're trying to do when you're doing these cause and effect experiments is you're trying to understand that all the relationships, but when people are discussing things with each other, they they aren't trying to get that whole picture of all the relationships. And so I think your idea of, of getting all the relationships that are affecting the model, that, that would be that would be a, an interesting project. And a, a difficult one, of course, because always power is going to um, you know factor into any discussion of of change and solutions. And uh, that's both a good and a bad thing because we do need leaders and leaders help people to to be able to organize activities. I, I think what you described is much more ambitious than the things that aren't quite working right right now. There are much more basic things that I think aren't really functioning in our public discussion. I'll give you one example. Recently, I saw a psychologist, a researcher in psychology, et cetera, publish links and conclusions from an ongoing study from the Canadian government about how daycare affects children when they grow up. And some of the findings are negative. Those children would have been better if they did not go to daycare that early. That is the general conclusion of the study. He got immediately crucified because if what he's saying is true, then that might have implications and the government might subsidize daycare less or something like that, right? But he's not talking about the implications. He's just talking about, hey, here's a study. It was published. Here are the conclusions. All he's saying is, basic facts that the Canadian government published. But right now, if you say those in the public sphere, often you get attacked for what might be the implications in terms of policy that doesn't quite depend on you. It depends on politicians. Yes. And and some of this has to do with this feature of language called recontextualization. And so you can take a study like that. And if you read the whole study, you get a particular picture, but people don't read the whole study. They take a little bits of information out and then repackage it in other information. And this is what people do all the time, even with stories, even with telling what happened yesterday. And this is something that we naturally do with language, and it does make it more complicated for people who want to say, wait, uh, let's let's pause a minute before this gets picked up in little pieces and distributed in ways that uh, perhaps weren't in the original article, but have now been utilized in different people's projects everywhere. And I think people are really aware of that power of language. And so they might be trying to raise a voice against that right from the start. In other words, you're objecting to they're not even getting to discuss it, but perhaps they're recognizing the power of this, of, of this, the possibility of this, and then they want to put in their objection right away. I hope, you know, that those, there's more time to talk mm-hmm. about it because it's certainly an important issue and it's a very difficult one, I think, uh, to, for, for people, for societies to organize to, to understand that particular aspect of, of, uh, of 
child rearing. <laughs> it is, but even I'm just using child rearing as an example that happens to be very relevant to me right now. But I'm just thinking we need to be able to understand reality, to measure reality, to discuss the way things are, if we are to be able to evaluate any future action, right? But if the moment we discuss reality, somebody attacks the tertiary implications of a policy that might make more sense if this reality were true, then we're never getting to actually understand what is true. So anyway, um, it was really great having you on today. I'm sorry if we did not get to end on a very hopeful note. <laughs> <laughs> well, the hopeful note is is for people to to talk to their families and find out about their families if they haven't been as fortunate as you have to know everything <laughs> there is to know about your elderly relatives. And I think you're a great model for people finding out because you already mentioned how moving it was to you and how much it's affected your life. Though I have to say, I can't take credit for any of it. I just have very talkative relatives. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hope people get to do what what you say, they can read your book. I will add descriptions uh, and links to the book so people can buy it. They will know what questions to ask. And hopefully they will ask those questions and get some perspective. Oh, thank you very much. It was very interesting talking with you. This has been another episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more discussions on news, media, information, and everything in between.